So yeah, what a story, huh? With a son like Jacob, with a wife like Rebecca, who in the world can you trust? Can you imagine poor Esau with a brother like Jacob, with a mother like Rebecca? Talk about family scars that follow you forever. This, folks, is our original dysfunctional family, and they are our ancestors in faith. Now, you may remember this family, Father Isaac, Mother Rebecca, twin sons Esau and Jacob. Isaac is the son of Abraham and Sarah of the covenant. God has promised to Abraham and Sarah that through them will come a people more numerous than the stars. God has promised land for all these people and that God will be their God forever. It's a pretty big promise. But Abraham and Sarah have only one child, Isaac. So the promise looks a tad lean by the time the two of them die. But God reiterates the promise to Isaac. God is still part of the deal. But Isaac only has two children, Sheesh, at this rate, it's going to be eons before there are enough folks who need land to live on. But God has promised. And so we hang in there with Isaac and his two sons, Esau and Jacob, waiting to see what will come. What comes is family intrigue, jealousy, callousness, lying, cheating, stealing, all the stuff of the best soap operas. Isaac and Rebecca's twins are about as different as night and day. Esau loves the outdoors, fishing, hunting, bows and arrows, the whole gamesman life. Jacob is quieter, he's the cook and the intellectual. And as different as they are, their parents each take a shine to one over the other. Esau is Isaac's favorite, Jacob is Rebecca's favorite. And this little distinction is not so little and it is not lost on the two boys. As teens, they have a typical sibling altercation that involves cunning as well as poor decisions and attitudes. Esau arrives home famished. Jacob has been cooking up the best stew off of the Food Network. Who knows what prompts the whole thing? Long-held sibling rivalry is my guess. But Esau tells Jacob to dish him up some of that stuff. And Jacob replies, fine, but it's going to cost you. Oh, come on, I'm famished. Just give it to me, retorts Esau. Nope, not for free, Jacob replies. And exasperated, Esau finally says, fine, name your price, I'm starving. And Jacob's price is Esau's birthright. Now, Esau was technically born first, so he is the oldest twin. But when Jacob was born, he was delivered clutching Esau's heel. So it's almost like they were born as one. But technically, Esau is the elder, and in those days, that entitled him to the birthright, which was no small deal. A birthright usually meant double the inheritance, if not the whole thing. It meant the family name and position. It was a big deal. And here he goes like a typical teen, giving it all away just because he's hungry. Now the boys grow up. Esau marries a woman that doesn't assimilate too well into this lovely family. The Bible says Esau and his bride made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah, so they moved out. Eventually, Isaac nears death. This is where we came into the story today. He cannot see, he can hardly hear, and knowing the 
end approaches he calls for Esau so he may impart the final blessing. Enter conniving Rebekah and thief Jacob, and we heard how together they tricked Isaac into bestowing the blessing of all blessings upon the wrong son, upon Jacob. Now, most of us struggle a lot with this part of the story. What's the big deal? Just redo the blessing and give it to Esau. And that's where the ancient culture leaves all of us in the dust. This blessing was a one-of-a-kind, forever sort of thing. In modern terms, it functioned much like a last will and testament without revocation abilities. So, of course, Esau's livid when he finds out what has happened. Isaac isn't too happy either. The tension in the home is palpable. Esau plots vengeance, and as soon as the old man kicks the bucket, he says he's coming after Jacob. He will get what is rightfully his the same way he lost it, through treachery. And so with fear for her beloved son Jacob, Rebekah convinces Isaac that Jacob should head off in search of a bride of his own. Both Rebekah and Jacob know that he is really running for his life, running from his furious brother. So Jacob hits the road, a refugee of sorts. He flees Esau's murderous anger. We wonder if he feels any remorse or grief. Did he wonder if it was all worth it to end up alone, away from home like this, out on the road at night? He has lied and cheated. He has been a trickster and a deceiver. What's going on in his heart? And what about God? What is God going to do with this mess? God has promised Abraham that through him will come nations. They will be God's chosen people, the ones who will be a blessing to all the nations. And here we have God's choices to bring that promise to reality, Esau, or Jacob? I'm not sure about you, but neither seems to be a shining stellar example of humanity to me. I'm not sure I want a blessing through either one of them. But here's where we learn so much about God. Because God could abandon this whole thing, right? This whole Abraham family thing. In fact, I think most of us would counsel God that the wise and prudent thing would be to bail ship right now, dump this dysfunctional group once and for all, and start over. But that is not what God does, despite having every right and reason to do so. No, because God has made a promise. And so instead, it's like God says, well, this is what I have to work with from Abraham, so let's get to it. And you see out there on the lonely road at night, God comes to Jacob, undeserving, fearful, fugitive Jacob, God comes and stands right beside Jacob and says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your offspring and the families of the earth shall be blessed in you. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Wow. God made those promises to Abraham, and God refuses to back out regardless of how Abraham's family messes up. Now, there's lots of talk about Jacob stealing this blessing from Esau, but at the end of the day, neither of them were deserving of this great blessing and promise, and that is exactly the point. 
Jacob is not admirable or trustworthy or deserving, but God keeps God's promises. God refuses to let us human beings derail God's ultimate plans. And so the promise was made to Abraham's family, and this is the family right now, and so the promise will continue as long as the descendants of Abraham exist. And guess what? That's us, folks. We are all in the line of Abraham and Sarah, and so the promise continues. This is the gospel message, the good news throughout time. God keeps God's promises. God is with us always. God provides despite who we are, despite the fact that none of us deserve this. Not Jacob, not Esau, not you, and surely not me. Yet, for some reason, deserving has nothing to do with it from God's point of view. Go figure. I like to notice where God enters this story. At Jacob's lowest, loneliest point, alone in the wilderness, without family, perhaps awash in feelings of grief, we don't know, in total lack, a stone, his only pillow. And who shows up? God stands right beside him. Talk about comfort in the midst of suffering. Surely, the Lord is in this place. God is always in the place of suffering, of struggle, of loneliness, of pain. Jacob recognizes God in his loneliness, in his fear, in his failure. And it's exactly the same to this day. God's presence can be so cleanly, clearly experienced in our lowest of lows. When the world has shut every door to us, when the waves of life overwhelm us, when all hope seems lost, that is when the doorway to heaven swings wide open. God stands beside us and says, I am here and I will never leave you. I have never left you. I don't know what it is about human nature, but we often seem unaware of God's constant presence until we ourselves hit rock bottom, our own rock for a pillow sort of place. So where has God stood beside you, offering comfort and compassion? When has your head rested on a rock and God showed up to lift your spirits to remind you of hope for the future. I tell you honestly that the worst time of my life was also the best time of my life. Because in those dark and harrowing years, I was closer to God's presence than any other time. God's love and compassion held me and my tears in ways that are indescribable, in a ways that allowed me to have hope, to keep putting one foot in front of the other, and to know in my soul that divine life and divine love were so much bigger than my own individual life could ever imagine. By God's grace, who we were yesterday does not determine who we must be tomorrow. By God's grace, we are never chained to our past. By God's grace, the past does not determine the future. And I'm telling you, if God can use a guy like Jacob, there isn't anyone God can't use. And of course, that means you and me. 
Now, something I'm really resonating with this year with this story is the idea of place, that God shows up in the most ordinary of places. In fact, in our story, God shows up in a place that isn't even on the map yet, out on the road in the middle of nowhere, and there's God standing right beside Jacob. It is a place of no particular significance at all, and in between sunset and sunrise, it is transformed into the house of God, Bethel, as Jacob names it. This, and friends, is the God of Abraham, the God who appears not to royalty or priests, but to a terrified refugee. The God who isn't found in a fancy temple or cathedral, but rather out on the dusty, lonely road of life. The God who finds us in whatever place we find our ordinary lives. The house of God, the gates of heaven, holy ground, are wherever we are in the moment. The thing is, we need to be prepared to experience God in places that don't look especially religious or places that we don't feel that God would be. Kind of like a baby in a manger or Terminal 5 at the bustling O'Hare Airport. Do you expect to encounter God when you head to that chaotic center of world air travel? I can honestly say I probably don't. But I think those of us that were there on the evening of September 8th as a refugee family stepped out of the customs area would tell you that surely God was in that place. And I think about that refugee family in light of this part of Jacob's story, alone in a place that is foreign to them. Rather than a stone for a pillow, they have three small gym bags and a carry-on to start a whole new life in a strange country, coming from most likely a tent camp in Rwanda. Look those up on Google, by the way. And they are out on the road with God standing beside them. When we got them to their new apartment in the city, I asked to bless them and their new family and home. You know, we pastors, we like to bless and pray over everything. And our interpreter, the fabulous JB that Kathy introduced us to this morning, who's helping us acclimate this family, he spoke to the matriarch, Jeanette, relaying my message. She spoke earnestly back to him what felt like many words to me. And I wondered, did my offer offend? Had it stepped on some toes somehow? Finally, J.B. turned to me and said, she says she fell to her knees praising the Lord when she found out they were coming here, and in all honesty, I don't remember at all what he said next. All I know is that Jeanette and I turned to each other, grabbed each other's hands, fell to our knees, and Jeanette burst into prayer and blessing. She praised God on her knees, her arms flowing in praise gestures. And soon, out of the corner of my eye, I noticed her whole family had also fallen to their knees, chanting and praying with her. In English, I tried to add my own praises, but all I could really do was recognize that surely the presence of the Lord was in that place. That small two-bedroom apartment in the Budlong Woods neighborhood of our city God's promises to this family fulfilled, promises of protection and a future away from the terrors of Rwanda. 
So I thought you might like to see some of this family story from some pictures from their new home in the States, the big team that helped from the church here to get them ready. You can still be a part of this team if you want. Um, and I thank Ben for once again putting together a slideshow for me. So um, here's an introduction to our family. So that gives us a glimpse into what is hopefully a long and happy ending for that refugee family. How about our refugee Jacob? Well, indeed, he goes on to be the father of 12 sons and two daughters who will become the nations of Israel, become the multitudes that God has been talking about all these years. 
His life will continue to vacillate between goodness and greed, holiness and wandering. In other words, an encounter with God doesn't necessarily help him clean up his act for good. But who remains constant? God. As humans, we can certainly thwart the divine will, but God will see it through one way or another. And the dastardly brother Esau, well, he is the star of one of my very favorite stories of the Bible. Eventually, years from today's story, Jacob will meet up with Esau for the first time again since all of these shenanigans today. As you can imagine, Jacob is a wreck, fearing Esau, wondering what awaits him. Will Esau's anger have grown so much over the years that he will just simply kill Jacob on sight? In one of the greatest stories of reconciliation of all time, Esau charges upon Jacob, all right, but with arms flung wide open for the biggest bear hug ever. The two rival brothers together, finally, in an embrace of love and acceptance, God's love and mystery working in both their hearts. So as I said, I'm thinking a lot about how God works in our lives, how place plays a part in how we experience God, how we become aware of God's presence, especially when we encounter God unexpectedly, how we recognize God standing with us, either in a place of deep joy and love or a place of deep sorrow and despair. These crazy stories of Genesis tell me that God uses ordinary people for a widespread blessing. And I'm recognizing that when God meets us on the way, a true encounter with God seems to demand some sort of recognition from us, some way to mark that moment and that place. Jeanette marked her new life in America by falling to her knees in praise and prayer. Jacob marked the holy ground where God came to him with a pillow rock. The truth is, it's all holy ground if we pay attention. So, I've brought rocks for all of you. Scott will take these back and put them in the narthex. I want you to take a rock home, hold on to it, and then use it to mark some spot where you encounter God unexpectedly or some experience or place that leaves you marveling in your heart. Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. Amen.